great to see everyone today. Glad you're here. Thanks for coming to Centerpoint. If you're new here, welcome. I'm glad you came. Uh, my name is John. I'm lead pastor, and I hope that you feel right at home. I want to ask a question just real quick by show of hands. How many of you have an eccentric family member? Somebody that's really eccentric in your family. Really? Are, are you serious? Just like that many? I thought it would be all of us, but okay, I, have, I have an eccentric family member. I should say had, um, and in my case, it was my dad. My dad was an extremely eccentric guy, and you know, he, he uh, has been with the Lord for almost 10 years now, but uh, he, he was a very eccentric guy, and the thing about my dad was he was paralyzed from the waist down, and so uh, he, he made up for that by using other parts of himself with great strength, right, and one of those parts of himself that he used was his voice box, and uh, we were in a series called Shout, and I've been thinking about the different kinds of shouts I've heard, and one of them came from my dad, and he had this thing that he always did, and, uh, and it was whenever we would get into a wide open place of any kind, uh, outside wide open place, inside wide open place, like we'd get to uh, a park, for example, or, or something like that, or a scenic overlook if we were on a road trip, he'd get out of the car and he'd walk with his canes and braces over to a place, and, and he'd lift out his, his head like this, and then he would go, whoo! except it would be like 10 times louder than that. Like it would reverberate and echo and fill the whole valley and he'd just shout it out, right? And, and uh, he would do this out at a park or he would do this, sometimes we'd, we'd go to a museum and, and he'd look around at those marble walls and you could see this look of delight in his eyes and he would just, and my mom would almost be like, oh, <laughs> like this, because she knew that he was gonna do it and there was no stopping it. He was gonna let it all out and he would just stand there in that museum and you know, people would be like, you know, security guards would be coming over and say, excuse me, sir. You know, and I remember one time we were at the Carnegie Hall. Not, uh, sorry, no, that's not the name of it. Anyway, this concert hall in Princeton, New Jersey. And the concert was about to begin. And, and so everyone's talking in the audience. But then, you know, they, they came out and the, the players came out. And so everyone started quieting down. And that was my dad's big moment. He saw how quiet it was getting. And he stood up and went right where we were sitting in the balcony. And my mom was like, oh, Jack. <laughs> and there it went. Boom. A big shout, right? And it was crazy. People were looking around like, who is this crazy guy? But there was just something. In, in my dad that he just felt, hey, there's something deep within me and I need to let it all out. I need to shout. I got to let my voice be heard. Shouting something that, you know, it, it's, it's got places where it's kind of inappropriate. My dad, you know. Um, and then there's a place where shouts are totally appropriate. Like every stadium, you know, and if you're a fan of, of sports or if you're a football fan in particular, you know, that kind of is part of the deal. You expect that there will be some shouting that will happen uh, in the stadium when you get there. And uh, I discovered that, uh, that the average NFL stadium, when the crowd starts shouting, achieves a decibel level of about 90. And that's pretty good and loud. Uh, our worship in here, uh, we hit it about 88 decibels, peaking at around 90. So it's, it's good and loud, right? And, and uh, and then, and I also, as a point of reference, found out that a jackhammer, you know, you're walking by a construction site, or maybe you're on one, right, but then you just have to cover your ears when you hear it, because it's so loud, that's at about 110 decibels. And then the flight deck of an aircraft carrier, where the jets are taken off, that's going to be about 130 decibels, and everybody's got earmuffs on, because it's so loud. I also found out this week that sound levels of 185 decibels can kill you. Literally, it's lethal. 
But I also found out this week that the loudest shout of a group of people in a football stadium ever on record recorded took place at the Arrowhead Stadium and the Kansas City Chiefs fans went wild in 2014 and shouted so loud collectively that they hit 142 decibels. Crazy loud, you know? It's like crazy loud. And, and I wonder if you and I were there, what it would have felt like, you know? If it, if it would have uh, made us feel just some energizing kind of excitement. I imagine it would, you know? I imagine if you touched the, the seats, you'd probably feel the vibration of it, even in the structure of the building, so loud, you know? And uh, it'd be probably an exhilarating experience, although it doesn't seem to have helped the Kansas City Chiefs very much. I mean, they haven't been to a Super Bowl since 1970, so <laughs> there's that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the shout is something that, that has a place. It has a place in, in our own lives, and it has a place in... in, in uh, the collective experience, the human story, and I, I want us to dive into a section of scripture today that showcases a, a moment where, where a shout kind of changed everything. So we're going to turn to the book of Joshua. I want you to open up the Bible to Joshua chapter 6. If you have a Bible with you, open it up right now to Joshua chapter 6, or open up your Bible app on your phone and punch into Joshua chapter 6. The backstory on this, if you haven't been reading this part of the Old Testament recently, is God's people, the Israelites, were in Egypt as slaves. Moses has come and delivered them from slavery in Egypt, and they've been wandering around in the wilderness with Moses for 40 years, and at this part of the Bible, they've just gotten to the moment where they're about to go into the promised land. Moses is now dead. And Joshua's in charge. And Joshua's had this big moment where God speaks to him and says, be strong and courageous and do not be afraid. So he's got something deep within him that's ready for what's next. And the thing is, there's the promised land, but there's this city called Jericho that's in the way. And Jericho's right there on the border and and, and, and there will not be a movement into the promised land unless they confront this situation uh, that we will call Jericho. So we're going to now turn to the scriptures in, uh, in, Jericho, in Joshua chapter 6 and, and read God's word together. So it says this. It says, now, the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. No one was allowed to go out or in. But the Lord said to Joshua, I've given you Jericho, its king, and all its strong warriors, you and your fighting men should march around the town once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn. On the seventh day, you're to march around the town seven times with the priests blowing the horns. And when you hear the priests, give one long blast on the ram's horns. Have all the people shout as loud as they can. And then the walls of the town will collapse and the people can charge straight into the town. Isn't that a great plan? Isn't that an amazing plan? Isn't that an incredible plan? It is incredible, as in it's incredible. It's hard to believe that's actually the plan. I mean, think about it like this. If Joshua had gathered together his military leaders, whatever, you know, generals or commanders he had, I mean, they had, they had been working on this. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. What if he had gathered the generals and the commanders together and said, all right, we need to get a plan. There's Jericho. What are we going to do? Here's what they probably would have come up with. They probably would have said, hey, all right, well, the problem is that the gates are tightly shut, so we need to lay up siege works 
big ramps up against those walls and we'll climb in over the walls. And before we do that, let's starve out all the supply routes and cut off the water supply and that will force the people to open those gates. And if they don't, then we'll burn the gates down. I mean, doesn't that sound like a nice, reasonable, rational military plan? Like, I think it's probably likely that those military leaders would have come up with something like that. And they could have said, look, we have experience with this kind of stuff. And based on our analysis, this is what we know we can do. And that's the problem. God was looking for a moment where he could demonstrate what he could do. Not where they could demonstrate just what they could do. They had a rough road ahead of them and they would always need to know that there was a God who was for them that could do things far beyond what they could ever come up with themselves. And so God gives this, this, this implausible plan into this impossible situation. And, and what do you do when that happens? What do you do when God speaks an implausible plan into an impossible situation? You do it. You obey. You find a way to say, yes, God. Yes, God, because... Breakthrough follows obedience. And so th this is a moment where, where God was looking to see if his people would take what he says to heart and do what he says. He's looking to see whether his people would say, yes, Lord, and follow through on it. It's kind of like this. One of my sons um, asked the other day if I would build him a ramp, a little scooter ramp, you know, a little kick ramp to... Uh, block all the cars in the driveway with you know so he asked if, if I could build him a ramp and and my answer is yes you know I love my son and and I want to give him good things and so when he asks for a ramp I'm thinking yeah it might cost a couple hundred dollars probably take me five hours of work but I want to do that for him and so I said to him you know what that ramp I want to do that for you I, I want to do it for you let's plan on it but first Come on, parents, you know those are magic words right there. <laughs> but first, <laughs> I said, but first, because I recognize my son as a valuable, contributing member of the household. <laughs> so there's a but first. Yes, I'm going to bless you. Yes, there's a breakthrough coming, right? But first, you know uh, the side of the house where the whole thing is filled up with weeds that are as tall as you are because of the rain? <laughs> And, and I could see him trying to stifle his reaction, his like knee-jerk, the eyes are like wanting to, and he's like, <laughs> and I said, oh yeah, and then in the back where the, the weeds are coming up through all the rocks, and, and, and oh, by the way, also you need to mow the lawn. And he's like, okay. <laughs> but in this moment, I, as his dad, I, I, I really do want to bless him. I do want to do something good for him that's on his heart. But first, I do want to see if he'll follow through with some simple obedience in what I'm asking him to do. And, and it's not because I'm a tyrant. I'm not a tyrant. I, I really do see him as a valuable, contributing member of the household. And I want him to see himself that way, too. I want him to know how strong and powerful he is, that he is able to do some of this and that, right? That he's able to make a contribution. I want him to see that. And, and then my blessing is going to come. And, and it's because I'm a good dad. It's because I do want him to know that he's strong. I do want him to know that he's able. And he's not going to know it unless he does it. And so I'm looking to see whether he will. And I'm proud to report to you that as of now, about one-third of the above work list is done. <laughs> no ramp yet. <laughs> but you know what? As we're reading in Joshua, what I see in this passage of Scripture 
is an invitation for a way to live. And at the core is obedience. At the core is a capacity to say, God, I hear what you're saying, and my answer is yes, I will do that, and to persist in that obedience. And so this is the main idea of the message today. You can jot it down if it makes sense to you, but it's a call, it's an invitation here in the scriptures to be persistent in living out your obedience to God and to be consistent in walking out your faith in God. I hope you'd read the scriptures like I do with a hope to discover what what God might be speaking to you. And what I feel God's speaking to me through this word is an invitation to be persistent in living out an obedience to God and to be consistent in walking out faith in God. And, And so it starts with God speaking and saying, this is my plan. And it might not make sense to you. You might think it sounds implausible, but it's my plan. Nevertheless, this is what I want you to do. Not everything that God speaks to us in terms of what we're meant to do sounds nice and neat and tidy and rational all the time. Sometimes God wants to see whether we will actually trust him for something that at first doesn't even seem to make sense. And so there they are, and and they get this word, this plan from God. What are they going to do with it? Let's find out. Verse 6. It said in Joshua 6, verse 6, So Joshua called together the priests and said, Take up the ark of the Lord's covenant and assign seven priests to walk in front of it, each carrying a ram's horn. And then he gave orders to the people, March around the town, and the armed men will lead the way in front of the ark of the Lord. And after Joshua spoke to the people, the seven priests with the ram's horns started marching in the presence of the Lord, blowing the horns as they marched. And the ark of the Lord's covenant followed behind them. And some of the armed men marched in front of the priests with the horns, and some behind the ark with the priests continually blowing the horns. Do not shout. Do not even talk, Joshua commanded. Not a single word from you until I tell you to shout. Then shout. So the ark of the Lord was carried around the town once that day, and then everyone returned to spend the night in the camp. The first thing I I want to celebrate is the miracle of communal obedience. I I really think it's important to acknowledge this, that that what we just read in and of itself is miraculous. For all of God's people to join together under the vision of a leader and say, together we say yes, God. That is miraculous. I know this from personal experience, (laughs) from being your pastor for 15 years. And it's one thing to sit and listen to a sermon. It's another thing altogether to say, okay, we're all in. We're all saying yes, God, together to something that will require something of us. That's miraculous what we just read. They did it. It's miraculous. It's amazing that it actually happened. But what I'm drawn to is what we read in verse 8. Because there's something about it. (laughs) In in verse 8 it said, after Joshua spoke to the people, the seven priests with the ram's horns started marching in the presence of the Lord. Everyone say, marching in the presence of the Lord. There was something about their obedience that activated an experience of the nearness of God. Their willingness to take those steps, their willingness to begin doing that walk, their willingness to, to be marching forward at his command, doing what God had said, invited an experience of the nearness of God for them. And you know what happens when you're in the presence of God? You know what's in the presence of God? In the presence of God, you find his peace. In the presence of God, you find his 
all-encompassing, unfailing love. In the presence of God, you find an experience of his ability to undo the knots of the soul. In the presence of God, you experience his power. In the presence of God, his strength begins to rise up in you. In the presence of God, healing begins to touch the broken parts from within you. I mean, it's good to be in the presence of God. Come on, somebody say amen. It's good to be in the presence of God. But listen, don't miss how they got there. They're marching around in the presence of God because they were willing to obey They were willing to say, I hear what you're saying, God. I won't ignore it. I won't diss it. I won't get cynical and skeptical about it. I will step into it. I will obey. I will be persistent in my obedience to you, God. And they marched around in the presence of God. I I love it. I love it. Everyone else might have looked and thought, well, there's some people walking around Jericho. But their experience was so personally powerful. They're marching in the presence of God. You know what? When we pray, aren't we kind of hoping to experience the presence of God? When, when I pray, I mean, sometimes I like to pray uh, sitting in a chair. Sometimes I like to pray literally kneeling down, bowing sometimes on the ground. But I'm also hoping to experience the presence of God in those moments. And sometimes the kneeling down or the sitting in a chair, I just feel kind of a little bit bored. Is it okay to admit that? You know, and so I find myself wanting to get up out of my chair, and I want to just start marching around somewhere, you know, and saying, God, I believe you for something. God, I'm hoping to see you move. God, I want to see you do the kind of things I've seen you do in the past. Sometimes I come in here early in the morning when it's dark and the lights are off, and and I just march down every single row of every single chair, touching each one and praying for whoever's face comes to mind, yours and someone else's and our pastors and our leaders. I'm just saying, God, I want to see you do something that you get to credit for and I literally feel the presence of God come and I'm I'm doing that marching in the presence of God and so listen I want to I want to challenge you with something maybe you've gotten to a place where you feel a little bit bored with your experience of God maybe you need to get up out of your chair maybe you need to try some of this old school marching in the presence of God I'm telling you this might be the very thing you need to do. I know a man in Germany, Pastor Richard Edu, that spends six hours every night just marching in the presence of God. Just going, God, I'm praying for what you want to do in my church. God, I'm praying for what you're going to do in this family. There's something about it. I mean, don't knock it till you tried it, right? So maybe you've gotten a little bit bored with sitting in your chair praying. Maybe you've gotten a little bit bored with, you know, you dutifully take up your position on your knees, but you're just not feeling. Maybe it's time to change it up a little bit. Maybe get outside and march around your block. You want to make it holy, holy? Do it seven times. But watch out if you start shouting, because your neighbors might think you're a little bit nuts. But but change it up. Be willing to march in the presence of God. I I met a guy a couple years ago. I was telling him about our church and telling him I was praying for God to move in revival in our church. And he's like, yes, that sounds great. Uh, I want to come, you know, have lunch with you sometime. And then after lunch, we can, you know, go into your your church worship center and just, we can just march around together. And when he said that to me, I was like, oh, I just found my people. Do you know, it's very rare to find another person, another brother that can say that to you and you both know exactly what you're talking about. And, and to know that, that something powerful happens. And, and he and I did. We came in here and started going, oh, God, I want to see you move in this place. God, we're shouting and marching in the presence of God. And who knows but that some of the breakthroughs that have come have come because there's a number of us that would be just gutsy and a little crazy enough to do some of that. 
some marching in the presence of God. So they're marching in the presence of God, and it's beautiful when it happens. You know, I wanted to just celebrate something briefly. There's a call in the scripture to be persistent in your obedience to God, because there can be a tendency to give up. There can be a tendency to take one step, but then just stop. And what I notice is that they just keep going, they keep going, they keep moving forward in this calling, in what God has said to do. Back in November, we all together made a commitment to what what Aaron Russ just referenced, Offer the One. And it's one thing for a bunch of us to say in a moment, yeah, we will do this, God. It's another thing altogether, four or five months down the road, to follow through on that and make good on it and to do it. And I just celebrate something. This past week, there were two families who each gave an offering of $5,000 for all for the one. And that's amazing to me. They're just regular families. They're just saying, you know what? This is a lot. But God, you've prompted us to do this. And, and for us to be obedient to what you've spoken, now's the time. We got to do it. Yeah. I th- is anybody willing to celebrate the faithfulness of God through his people? Come on. Nobody does that kind of thing unless God's prompting. Because right. naturally our tendency is to go, oh, it's mine. I, <laughs> boat. <laughs> you know, whatever. But there's got to be something inside of us that says, God, yours. Yes. Yes, God. And I celebrate it when it happens. And, and, and so in verse 12, it continues. It says that Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests again carried the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests with the ram's horns marched in front of the ark of the Lord, blowing their horns. And again, the armed men marched both in front of the priests with the horns and behind the ark of the Lord. Keep that on the screen for just a second. I want you to know that that part of what this is, I, I was praying about this, like what is it about the order of this, God? Like the, the ark in the middle, it's the symbol of the presence of God, you know? And the priests blowing their horns, we'll talk about that, but on either side, it says we're the armed men. And I, I feel that you should know this, that, that part of what that is a picture of is it is a picture of the work of the intercessors, those who pray, that, that part of the, the victory that we experience will come because there are those in the front and in the back that, that don't get much credit, but what they're doing is to, is to use the weapons of spiritual warfare to pray to see a victory come. Uh, but, but let me just continue reading. It says that all, all this time the priests were blowing their horns, and on the second day, verse 14, they again marched around the town once and then returned to the camp, and they followed this pattern for how many days? Six days. Six days. It's a simple little sentence, isn't it? They followed this pattern for six days. And it sounds like no big deal unless you're them. Because I think maybe day one, there was probably a little bit of excitement. Like, oh, man, this is crazy, but we're going to do it, you know? Marching around Jericho, here we go. But the second day, I wonder if maybe some of the people of Israel were beginning to look at each other like, are you sure? Do you, do you think Joshua really has a clue about what we're doing? Do you really think he heard from God, you know? By day three, they're going, I can't believe we're doing this. This is crazy. We should get the generals to have a conference, and let's figure out what we really ought to do. By day four, they're probably full on going, get Moses back from the dead, somebody. Come on. Like, this is terrible. And, and here's the deal. They had to be willing to be persistent in their obedience 
and consistent in walking out their faith. Day two, day three, day four, day five. And here's the thing. In a legitimate and authentic Christian life, so much of it is day four, day five, day six. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's not all mountaintops and unicorns all the time. It's not all day seven. In fact, the majority of it is days one and two and three, and here we go again. It still hasn't happened. I'm still hoping for it. I'm still waiting. God, I, I haven't seen it yet, but I believe you for it still. And, and this is the mark of a mature believer, the ability to keep walking, the ability to keep stepping forward one foot after the another in persistent obedience and a willingness to say, yes, God, I'll still give you my yes, even though I'm waiting, even though I'm wondering when it will happen, but it's been 13 years, but I'll keep on trusting you for it, God. I won't give up. I won't back down. One foot after another, I will persist in this obedience. I will keep on walking. I think maybe for some of us, the truth is right now we are. We're right about day four, and I wish I could tell you, yeah, but tomorrow... I don't know that. It might be a day five still and a day six still, but I'm looking. I'm looking for eyes that see things differently. Did you catch in verse two when we first started reading? God said in verse two, I've given Jericho to you. Did you catch it? It's as though God is saying, you should know I see things really differently than you. And you need to recognize this, that when you're in your day four moment, your day five moment, where it's like, is this ever, is it ever going to happen? Like, that you don't quit, that you don't give up, that you don't grow weary and bag out on it, that you keep on trusting your God, who has, has an ability to see things from his eternal, always now perspective, where he sees the victory as though it's already been given. And, and he says it to, to Joshua, I've, I have given you, Jericho. I've done it. But you know what? There's a... There's a, a little detail that we haven't really paid any attention to yet, and I want to make sure we catch it. Because there's this one thing that's referenced like eight times already, and it's in verse 13. It said, the seven priests with the ram's horns marched in front of the ark of the Lord, blowing their horns. We, we know that ultimately what's going to happen is that the shout is going to be released, but there's a different sound that happens first, and it's the sound of the ram's horns. And so I want you to know what that is. So, so these are what those are, ram's horns, right? Ram's horns, and, and these are actual, some poor little Yemeni uh, ram sacrificed these for you and me. <laughs> but, but when the scripture talks about a horn and, and the priests blowing their horns, it's not a bugle or a trumpet like you play taps on or something, it's this. And in fact, throughout the scriptures, when you read about trumpets being blown, it, it's most likely that it's this kind of instrument that people had in mind, because this was what was most prevalent, the ram's horn as a musical instrument. And, and as the priests were marching around day after day after day, and Joshua had said, not a word from you, but they did get to make a sound, and it came from the shofar. The Hebrew word for this musical instrument is shofar. Everyone say shofar. The shofar. And, and this uh, musical instrument, <laughs> it, it, it's one that ha has so much uh, significance. And throughout the scriptures, it's referenced. I mean, time and time again, I'll just share a few with you. Uh, for example, in Zechariah 9.14, it says, 
the Lord God himself will blow the shofar and will march with them in the storm winds of the south. That God himself would blow the shofar. It's a little bit mind-blowing. And, and then in Matthew 24, 31, when Jesus is talking about his return, he says, the Son of Man will come and he will send out his angels with a mighty blast from the from the shofar. Uh, the word in most translations is trumpet, but it would be this. This is what he envisioned because this, he's an Aramaic Jewish man. The, the horn is this, shofar. And then in Joel 2.1, it says, blow the shofar in Zion. The day of the Lord is coming. This instrument speaks of that day. And then 1 Thessalonians 4.16, it says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the yeah, the shofar, the trumpet call of God. But this is the instrument that, that, that was envisioned, like this one. And it's just ruddy and simple and earthy and kind of foolish almost looking. But it's powerful. And, and even among the Jewish community to this day, it, it's a part of the Jewish worship experience. To, not, not to necessarily blow the shofar, but to hear it. I mean, that's actually the command in, in the Jewish community is you will hear the sound of the shofar, and they blow it. And so I'm going to just go ahead and give this a shot and see if I can do it. about that you know you hear that sound and it's just got this earthy richness to it and then you put the pieces together and you recognize like throughout the scriptures it's that sound it should awaken something and, and it really does it does it does and they heard the the sound of that that shofar but I still think you know you look at it and, and you think that that's where the victory is going to come from that's foolishness that's foolishness but you know what? The scriptures say in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the message of the cross is also foolishness. It says it's, it's foolishness. It's foolishness. This right here is as foolish as this right here. The city's going to be conquered by this. Sin's going to be conquered by this. And it's that message of the cross that is foolishness to some, but uh, those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's the power of God, and the power of God comes and sets us free from sin and death. The power of God comes through the message of the cross and breaks off guilt and shame. The power of God comes through the foolishness of the cross and breaks down the walls of death and hell and the grave, and I'm grateful for that foolishness. So Joshua, in verse, uh, in verse 15, it continues, it says, on the seventh day, the Israelites got up at dawn and marched around the town as they had done before. But this time, they went around the town seven times. The seventh time around, as the priests sounded the long blast on their horns, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the town. Jericho and everything in it must be completely destroyed as an offering to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and the others in her house will be spared, for she protected our spies. 
Do not take any of the things set apart for destruction, or you yourselves will be completely destroyed, and you will bring trouble on the camp of Israel. Everything made from silver, gold, bronze, or iron is sacred to the Lord and must be brought into his treasury. Let me keep going in verse 20. It says, when the people heard the sound of the ram's horns, they shouted as loud as they could. And suddenly, the walls of Jericho collapsed, and the Israelites charged straight into the town and captured it. And they completely destroyed everything in it with their swords. Men, women, young and old, cattle, sheep, goats, and donkeys. That's rough, isn't it? I think from time to time, we need to allow ourselves to be honest when we read the scriptures. And when we get to places where we go, what happened to God is love? You know, to allow ourselves to... Feel the tension for a moment. I mean, can you read that and hear about men, women, old and young, sheep, donkeys, all of them, all have to be destroyed. Can you read that and not feel a little bit of a something churning inside? I think it's okay to say, yeah, that's hard. That's hard to make sense of. What do I do with that? How do I reconcile that with my God who's a God of love? You need to be able to step back a little bit from the immediacy of, of just reading that, and it sounds so intensely harsh, and it is. But the big picture story is that this is Jericho. This is the land of the Canaanites, and this group of people is practicing a, a, a religion in the worship of Molech and Ashtoreth, where they're offering their children as child sacrifices, killing their children on their altars to Molech and Ashtoreth, and practicing ritual prostitution as an act of their religion. And the two of those things together turned God's heart sour so much. And he raised up prophets to speak to them, to call them back from this wickedness. And it never stopped. And because it never stopped, God said, I will see to it that, that it stops. And in this moment, God effected finally his judgment. And I want us to know that the truth of the scripture reveals that God is a God of love. Yes. But never forget that one of his names is Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord who is mighty in battle, or another translation, the Lord of heaven's armies. He will rise up and deal with the things that need to be dealt with. He will deal with it in a Jericho. He will deal with it in a John Hansen. He will deal with it in me and you and in anywhere else he needs to. And he will get savage if he's got to. His preferential option is to uh, afford mercy, afford an opportunity for repentance. That's his first draw. But if there's no response, he will do what needs to be done. And he does it. He does it. And, and he brings a victory for Joshua and the people. And it comes through that shout. You got to read it again in verse 20. When the people heard the sound that ram's horn made, they shouted as loud as they could. And suddenly the walls of Jericho collapsed. I've read articles that have said, well, what really happened was that the people were uttering such a frequency with the sound of the decibel levels of their vocal cords that it caused such a frequency that it eroded the mud uh, mortar between the rocks such that it uh, fell. <laughs> really? Really? Tell me more. <laughs> like, that's not what happened. 
What happened was that their faith from a very deep place within them rose up and accomplished something. In Hebrews 11, verse 30, in the New Testament, God gives voice to what really happened that day. In Hebrews 11, verse 30, it says, it was by faith that the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days. It took a lot of consistent walking out of faith to keep doing that. By faith, they walked and marched around Jericho for seven days, and by faith, the walls came crashing down. It wasn't some mysterious, mystical frequency from their vocal cords. It wasn't the intensity or the decibel level of their shout. It was the depth of their faith, and they let it all out in that moment. And I wonder if maybe that six days before of wondering with the tension inside of, it hasn't happened yet, but I'm digging even deeper to say, God, I still believe you for it. And another day goes by and it still hasn't happened, but I'm digging even deeper and saying, I still believe you for it, God. I wonder if that doesn't do some faith strengthening to finally bring about a seventh day victory. And the six days are all that they could do, but the seventh day is what God could do. Six is the number of man. Six is the number of humankind. Six is the number of what people can do, but seven is the number of perfection. It's the number of completion. It's the number of consummation. It's the number of what God accomplishes. And, and, and that seventh day moment, I think, is tied to a walking out of faith and dealing with all of the difficulty and the challenge and the question, but the keeping on believing anyway. It brings something that only God can get the credit for in the end. You know, the shout is important. Uh, sometimes a shout is conveyed in a word, you know, like, yes, or send it, you know, or some shout, you know. But some of the deepest things that we convey go beyond words, like that rolling belly laughter that you just can't stop, you know, or that groan that comes in, in, in that time where just words won't even do, or, or that sigh. Praying in tongues, singing in the spirit. Some of the deepest things that come from within us go beyond words. And the shout is kind of like that. It's one thing to shout with a word. It's another thing when you just find yourself in a moment where all you can do is just go, ah! That <laughs> freak anybody out? <laughs> I got my own little gestalt therapy going on up here. <laughs> but there's something, something about a sound like that that comes from this deep place. It's... It's visceral, it's soulish, it's primal, it's primordial, but it draws something out. And when you let it all out, it becomes a vehicle through which your faith flows. And it goes to a deep place because it's from a deep place. And Ephesians 6, 12 said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the authorities and the powers and the rulers and the spiritual forces of wickedness in the unseen realm. And in this passage of scripture, part of what you're seeing is God saying, I will not be content for you to only deal with the material when there's a spiritual reality that has to be defeated. And the only way that's gonna happen is if something from deep within you comes and is exerted with my blessing and favor backed up by your steps of obedience and the breakthrough comes so the victory comes from the lord and it comes 
in a way that might have seemed a little foolish, but it's what God chose to work through. I wonder if maybe somebody standing around in Jerusalem around the time of the crucifixion of Jesus might have thought, that's, that's foolish. They think that that cross is going to save them? But again, 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And, and so listen, the power of God. The power of God has come through the message of the cross for you to be forgiven, for you to be set free, for you to be healed, for you to be given the power of God to overcome what needs overcoming. And so for somebody today, I'm calling you as a believer to get back in touch with the depth of the presence of God to bring power into your life, to rise up against whatever walls of Jericho you've got to deal with. I'm calling you to that, believer. It's what you're made for. These are your people. Ephesians 2, 14 says it like this. It says, Christ himself has brought peace to us. He's united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. The Jewish people, this is a Jewish story. But here God says, yeah, and, and these are your people. That's your granddaddy. You have a family legacy of breakthrough, of walls coming down when they need to. Grab hold of it today and live it out. What walls are in front of you right now? Are you going to let the devil win and, and talk you into thinking that you don't have a chance against that impossibility? Or are you going to allow the power of God's word to come right now and rise up inside of your gut so that you would go, I got it because my God's got it. And let your shout out. Full of faith, full of boldness, full of belief and trust in your God because of who he is. But somebody else today, you need to come into a moment where once and for all, you believe in the message of the cross. And maybe you did think it was foolishness. But today, something's waking up inside of you because you know that you need the forgiveness that comes through this thing that looked so foolish. And so you, you got to start right now giving your heart to Jesus in trust, asking him to forgive you and save you. And then you begin your own marching in the presence of God. Why don't you pray with me for a moment? God, I pray that you would awaken many of us who are believers to come back to a place where we would say, I'm going to live this persistent obedience in my God, and, and I'm going to walk out a consistent, uh, a consistent faith in my God. I pray for a supernatural impartation to do that. Keep on going, obedience and following our God, and a deep consistency of deeper and deeper trust in our God.